Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is June 22nd, 2022, and it is my pleasure uh, to have with me today someone I've been honored to host previously on this podcast, the preeminent Palestinian journalist and political analyst, Dalia Hatuka. Dahlia is a multimedia journalist specializing in Israeli-Palestinian affairs and regional Middle East issues as they pertain to business, economics, culture, art, and U.S. foreign policy. She writes about religion, minorities, and immigration in the U.S. as well. You can read her work in pretty much every outlet around the world. If you don't know her work, you should Google it, and you should absolutely look at her compendium of work on her website, which is dahliahatuka.com, and follow her, probably most importantly, on Twitter because she is a very active person on Twitter with information and links and commentary that is important to follow. That is at Dahlia Hatuka, H-A-T-U-K-U-Q-A. And I'll post all of this with the podcast. So Dahlia, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So um, I want to talk to you today um, about Shireen Abu Atle, um, who is your friend. Uh, so on May 11th, just as background for people who have been living under a rock, maybe on May 11th, um, one of Israel's, oof, one of Palestine's greatest journalists and your friend, Shina Abu Atle, was killed while doing her job reporting from the West Bank. In the aftermath of her death, Israel turned to a familiar set of tactics to try to shape the media narrative, relying on, and this is my analysis, denial, deflection, gaslighting, and even effectively blaming Palestinians for their own deaths. And here I'd like to remind people of the Israeli government official who immediately after Shireen's killing described Palestinian journalists as being, quote, armed with cameras. And I'll have a link to that quote with this podcast. Yet Shireen's killing has stayed stubbornly in the news, including with multiple investigations carried out by international media outlets, including, I'm going to listen, CNN, Associated Press, Washington Post, Bellingcat, the investigative uh, outlet, and most recently, this a couple of days ago, a major investigative report in the New York Times. So, Dalia, just to start us off, can you talk a little about the various investigations that have taken place? And not only with respect to their conclusions, which are interesting and important, but also with respect to their very existence, what that says about reporting and how it relates to Israel's treatment of Palestinians. So the first thing I want to say is that um, uh, immediately uh, after Shireen was killed, uh, we noticed that Israeli authorities um, blamed Palestinian fighters for her death. So they circulated uh, this video of Palestinian men shooting down an alleyway in Jenin. Um, But also immediately after that, researchers from renowned Israeli human rights group B'Tselem found the spot where this clip was filmed. So it was 300 meters away uh, and with no line of sight uh, to the place where Shireen was killed. And um, unless, you know, Palestinian bullets can turn corners and climb stairs, uh, then the video that the Israeli authorities circulated of the men had nothing to do with her death. Um, Like you mentioned, you know, high profile media uh, investigations, AP, NYT, CNN, Washington Post, Uh, They all confirmed eyewitness uh, testimonies that uh, Shirin's killing was a targeted attack by Israeli forces. Uh, They said that the bullet that killed her was fired from the approximate location of the Israeli military convoy that was there, most likely by a soldier from an elite unit. 
Um, the investigations found, um, you know, there was no active combat. There were no Palestinian militants near Shirin in the moments leading up to her death. And but here, I, I would say that impunity seems to be guiding the Israeli army. Um, I, I, you know, they conducted a brazen televised assault on Shirin's funeral, where even pallbearers were be beaten um, while demonstrating that there, it has no interest in investigating its actions. But to go back to the second part of your question, all these investigations by CNN, uh, New York Times, et cetera, uh, beg the question, why can't Palestinian eyewitnesses who were present at the scene be taken at their word? Why should they only believe, be believed when high profile media outlets say what the Palestinians have been saying from the get go? Um, the length the lengths that the media feel it is necessary to go to in order to publicly reject or challenge Israel's narrative is, is extraordinary, mainly because it shows that even the media doesn't take Palestinians at their word. And because on the, um, the second part of it is that the Israeli narrative is so predominant and is always taken as fact. So even when you look into the AP and NYT investigations, for example, you see, especially these two, you see a lot of jargon um, and uses of the passive voice, as if to say, you know, this bullet somehow found its way into Shirin's head and not because an Israeli soldier deliberately shot that bullet and killed her. Um, it's as if they're unsure themselves of what their own experts or eyewitnesses have, have found. And honestly, for me, like as a journalist, but also as Shirin's friend, I just find it very disheartening. Yeah, I'll say I find it a little bit mind boggling reading all these reports, because one of the things that's, that seems missing from all of them is recognition that the Israeli arguments of what happened were immediately proven to be I mean, you could say at best, if, if you want to assume not bad intent, that they were incompetent and brazenly incorrect. And more likely, they were an effort to shape the narrative in a direction that wasn't accurate. And somehow that isn't even brought into this. It's like, well, we're going to treat the Palestinian side of it as if it's always in doubt and lying, no matter how many videos and eyewitnesses accounts we have. And we're going to completely ignore the fact that from the get go, the Israeli response was to try to shift the narrative away from the facts. I mean, it, it, it's quite amazing. I, I, when the last New York Times report came out, I was wondering how many more of these are we going to have um, when, I mean, at this point, it seems pretty well established. The only thing that I think you can say is, is not absolutely established is this question. I, and I understand why journalists will say the intent. Was the soldier who shot it aiming at the back of her head or did he shoot in a careless way and hit the back of her head? And I can see why a journalist might say we can't be inside the head of a soldier to know what they were thinking. But that seems to be based on the facts, the only thing that you can't say pretty categorically. Um, I want to go back to something you said. You mentioned impunity. So after Shireen was killed, after the initial round of Israeli framing that this, you know, this false framing, and I'll put the, in, in, in with this podcast, I will put links to the various reports. I'll also put in links to the, the work that B'Tselem did in the day of the shooting. And if they, it's, it's important because if they hadn't done it that day, it's, you know, this narrative I think would have gone in a different direction. They, it, it, it was important that people at least called out the basic arguments. But immediately after the shooting, as that argument fell apart, you had the Israeli military publicly recognizing that it was probably a bullet 
fired by one of its soldiers that killed Shirin. Um, but at the same time, they declared almost immediately that there wasn't going to be any sort of criminal investigation open. And I'm going to read from the official statement. In view of the nature of the operational activity, which included intense fighting and extensive exchanges of fire, which I will say is not accurate according to the investigations that were carried out, going on, it was decided that there was no need to open a military police investigation at this time. The decision was made in accordance with the Judea and Samaria investigative policy as approved by the Supreme Court, according to which it does require the opening of a criminal investigation into the death of Palestinian during operational activity with real combat, unless there's a real suspicion of a criminal offense. So in effect, they're saying that even if she was killed by one of our soldiers, they didn't do anything wrong yet. And this is coming into my next question. At the same time, Israel and the US, including the Biden administration, the US and some in Congress, and of course the pro-Israel organizational world in the US, remain devoted to the argument that before any investigation can take place, the PA must hand over to Israel the bullet that killed Shirin, and it has to cooperate in a quote unquote joint investigation with Israel. So with all of that in mind, can you lay out for our listeners, some of whom may not know quite so much of this, some of may be skeptical of the Palestinian voices, why is the Palestinian Authority refusing to hand over the bullet? And why is the PA skeptical of Israel's intentions when it calls for a quote unquote joint investigation? I mean, the argument I hear from people here is, well, if they have nothing to hide, why wouldn't they investigate together? And, and what is the PA calling for instead when it demands an independent investigation? I think um, the first uh, part of your question, the answer to that is because the PA is aware of Israel's history with manipulating public opinion, uh, with the fact that it carries out little or no investigations. And then when it carries out those investigations, nothing comes of them. And the main point uh, with these investigations is for Israel to protect its own above all else. Um, Israeli mil military investigations into the deaths of Palestinians often drag on for months, sometimes years, without reaching firm conclusions or leading to prosecutions. Um, I believe it's Yashtin, you know, another um, renowned Israeli human rights group that found that, um, and I quote, 273 complaints filed in 2019 and 2020 against Israeli troops for violence against Palestinians or damage to their property, only four led to indictments of soldiers. So, you know, one case I think for me strikes parallels to the killing of Shirin. And I, I, I wanna hold it up as an example of why the distrust on the Palestinian side runs so deep. So uh, Yasser Murtaja was a Palestinian journalist who was killed by an Israeli sniper in April 2018 during mass protests in the Gaza Strip. Um, he ran a small news agency um, known for its drone footage. He, he worked on documentaries about refugees, etc. cetera. Um, he was 31 and, and like Shirin, that day that he was killed, he was wearing a vest clearly labeled press. And like Shirin, the Israeli military promised to investigate the killing following an international outcry. But in the days after his death, immediately senior Israeli officials accused the man of being a, a senior Hamas operative, thereby muddying the waters. Um, and they said that he held a rank equivalent to captain. 
Um, now, Israel never provided evidence for the allegation. Uh, Murtaja's family strongly denied it. Um, uh, Murtaja's company had been approved for a US government grant, which proves that you know he went through an extensive background vetting. Um, and Israel's claims immediately sparked confusion, which is what they wanted about whether Murtaja was killed deliberately for these alleged Hamas activities, or he was shot by accident in the chaos of you know, the violent protests at the fence separating Gaza from Israel. And here we are four years on and Israel's military investigation has offered, offered few answers. Now the IDF said in a brief statement, like lately, that Murtaja's death was investigated and um, the findings were, you know, pa passed, passed on to military prosecutors who determined no suspicion was found of a crime having been committed and they closed the case and there were no ind indictments. So, so many people, not just Yasser Murtaja, but even, you know, dual citizens like Shirin, um, uh, the old man, uh, Omar Asad, the 78-year-old American Palestinian man who was killed um, uh, back in, in January, I believe. Also, no indictments. We don't know what's, you know, what happened to that, um, to that probe. And so that doesn't surprise me that the PA is afraid to give the Israelis the only piece of evidence they have, you know, that, uh, uh, to Shirin's killing. Yeah, I mean, I think the... the... We, the record of Israel and in investigating itself is is quite clear, um, and and you know that argument is not compelling for people who say and we believe them. <laughs> um, but the bottom line, whether it is investigating the death of an Israeli um, an Israeli Palestinian citizen who is protesting, or whether it is well, I mean, I'm thinking of Gaza. I'm thinking of all of the shootings around the Gaza, you know, line. Where, or, or when you, the bombing of a, a building, you know, Israel says it will investigate and then the time drags on. You have the reputation of the Palestinians involved dragged through the mud to, to muddy the waters. And eventually there's a determination that there's no, no harm was done, no fault was found and therefore we move on and they say we investigate it. Um, and this is apropos of nothing. I mean, it, it, it's, this is not unrelated to why, when I talk to Palestinians, they talk about why it is important to go to the ICC. The idea that Israel can investigate has been, I think, for Palestinians proven to be very clear why that is a bad answer. Um, so you mentioned the American citizen angle. One of the things that has kept Shireen's life and her killing in the spotlight internationally in the U.S. is, of course, that she is an American citizen. So uh, you're not she's obviously a celebrated journalist. The American citizen piece of it, though, gives it an extra hook. Um, can you talk specifically about the U.S. response? to the killing of an American citizen, of a journalist. Um, and here I wanna talk about like both the immediate response and how it has evolved or maybe not evolved over time as time has passed. And can you talk about the calls in the US to conduct an independent investigation? We've heard these from various quarters, including from some members of Congress and from Shidian's family members and the Biden's response to these calls. The first thing I wanna say is, you know, just, uh, for context uh, is, uh, you know, the United States is not a neutral observer. Uh, the United States has a responsibility and the leverage. Um, uh, Israel is a very close ally and the U.S. provides it with approximately $4 billion in military assistance, you know, on an annual basis. 
So given the level, the level of diplomatic and military support that the US gives Israel, it has every right to demand that Israeli authorities do not target journalists or you know, medical personnel or infrastructure in general, as it did with the AP and the Al Jazeera uh, building in Gaza, for example, a few years ago. Um, so there was a quick you know, series of condemnations at the beginning when Shirin was first killed. Uh, I recall Nancy Pelosi said something, um, the Biden administration uh, called for a thorough investigation and full accountability, but it has declined to step in and launch its own inquiry. Um, the, Shirin's death has largely fallen you know, out of headlines since her funeral. Um, and I, I think what we want here is justice and accountability, which is something that the US gave to the families of both both journalists Daniel Pearl and um, Marie Colvin. Um, so it's not unheard of for the U.S. to demand an investigation or to send, an, uh, you know, as they did in Daniel Pearl's case, an FBI team to investigate his killing, his, his brutal killing. So um, another thing that Shirin's family could do is they could sue the Israeli government in U.S. civil court. Uh, this was what happened with um, Colvin's family, you know, the American journalist for London's Sunday Times. Uh, she was killed in 2012 in a rocket attack by the Syrian government. Um, so, you know, the, the court ordered uh, $300 million in damages. And, and while it's, it's going to be very difficult to collect from the Syrian government, I think that the, you know, the ruling uh, that Colvin had been deliberately targeted as a journalist was important. It was important to her family, to uh, press freedom advocates, to human rights advocates. And Shirin's case could also end up before the ICC, as you mentioned earlier, um, which is something that Al Jazeera is already pursuing. Uh, but uh, the thing is, a referral doesn't guarantee an investigation. And the fact that neither Israel nor the U.S. is a signatory to the ICC makes enforcement in the event of a ruling unlikely. And that's why we need a U.S. investigation. Uh, we need that to ensure that the matter is beyond dispute. Um, and if the shooter did prove to be an Israeli sniper, which I'm sure it is, only the U.S. has the influence to make Israel's government hold those responsible to account. Nothing prevents the Biden administration from revising its position and sending an FBI team, like I mentioned earlier. And uh, as more than 50 American lawmakers, if I'm not mistaken, have called for. So, you know, that's what happened in 2002 with uh, Daniel Pearl. So it's not unheard of. And yes, an investigation like that would require cooperation from both Israeli and Palestinian officials. But I feel like if the U.S. takes over, the Palestinians would gladly give the, a bullet that the Israelis you know, claim is the key to un, you know, unlocking this mystery of who killed Shirin. I mean, you know, if the Israelis wanted, they would just go to Janin and look into you know, um, the shrapnel and the remnants of, of the bullets 
uh, that went into the tree trunks and into the, you know, the area in general, because if I'm not wrong, there were 16 shots that were made. So it's not like Israel needs that one uh, um, bullet to determine who killed her. And also, um, the, one of the you know silver linings is that senators, you know, like Mitt Romney, for example, uh, wrote to uh, Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken to push the matter. You know, they talked about pr press freedom being a core American value. Um, and, you know, they wanted to ensure a full and transparent investigation is completed. And I think that's very important, but I think there needs to be more from Congress in order to keep pushing and to, to keep this issue alive. Because as deep a commitment as the U.S. has to Israel's security, it has an even greater obligation to the safety and security of its own citizens. Like, I'm an American citizen. Do I feel safe when I'm out there? Like, does my passport make me feel safe? No, it does not. Because the second I go through Allenby Bridge, the only way I'm looked at is through the lens, through a Palestinian lens. And, and that's it. And so there are no guarantees. And, and, and Shirin's case has showed us that there are no guarantees, you know? Um, and the U.S. has shown that it has the means to enforce the full accountability it calls for, the question is whether it has the motivation to use them. Um, and this is a particular, particularly grim conclusion for Palestinian American journalists like me, who feel like they can't trust their own government to protect them. You know, because like I said earlier, ultimately when I cross Allenby Bridge, I'm Palestinian first and foremost. And finally, I would say that the Biden administration still has the opportunity to determine definitively who killed Shireen and to turn her case into a deterrent for those who might otherwise have, you know, have no problem murdering members of the press. So unless the U.S. is willing to act on its own words, you know, the, the first thing we heard about from the Biden administration was that you know it, it wants uh, human rights you know to be at the forefront of its uh, agenda, and so this is its opportunity. Yeah, I, I think that's that's brilliantly said. I will say, as someone who's been working in this field for for a long time, the record of the U.S. in in defending American citizens who are um, killed by Israel in the West Bank, and this includes non-Palestinian American citizens. I'm remembering Rachel Corey. Um, it, it sort of is like, well, you know, your American citizenship becomes less important when you are on the politically inconvenient side of this conflict. Whereas, by the way, I think we should be clear, if you're an American citizen who is injured or killed in an attack by Palestinians, this is something that will in some ways hijack, no pun intended, the U.S. foreign policy agenda. Partly because an administration, all administrations are, are you know, responsive when people demand you know, for their citizens, except when they're Palestinians. Um, and also because um, those, Amer those American citizens and their, and their families are much more likely to be represented and take by organizations which will take the Palestinians to court and make this a court issue and really force the hand of the government and force, force the policy. I'm thinking here of, of the family of Taylor Force who was murdered. I mean, this is, these become major issues when they're on the other side of the political equation. Um, but what you said about the, the precedent, I think, is, is really important. Thinking a little bit about precedent and, and legacy, um, 
so you and I were talking before we started the podcast that we've just passed the 40th uh, day marking the, the death of Shireen. And, and the 40th day for people who don't know is a, a day of mourning and remembrance in the Orthodox church. And, and that's the, Shireen was a member of the Orthodox Christian church. Um, so here I want to quote another Al Jazeera journalist, Vanya Zabane, who people should also follow on Twitter. Um, she wrote, and this was a few days ago, um, she tweeted, um, at her 40th memorial service in Jerusalem yesterday, Father Abdullah Yulio of the Melkite Greek Catholic Church likened Shirin Abu Atle to a kernel of wheat, citing John 12, 24. And the, the citation goes, unless, quote, it falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Um, thinking about that, that metaphor, can you talk as, as a journalist, as a Palestinian, and as Shireen's friend, can you talk about her legacy um, for Palestinians and, and, and more broadly? I want to start out with talking about Shireen as a, you know, as a human being, like, um, and as a woman, like, she was so down to earth. Uh, people would stop her in the street, like, even in D.C., uh, people would recognize her and, you know, they'd want to take selfies and she would always happily oblige. She was so down to earth. Um, I, I don't think, I, I mean, I know she knew that she was very well known, but it never got to her head. So she was a media darling, but not a diva, so to speak. And um you know, there are so many things to know about her behind the camera. Like she was really funny. Um, she loved to shop. She loved to party and travel. Um, she had an infectious laugh. Um, she loved to dance and have fun. She was like a free spirit, you know, and covering Israeli atrocities in Palestine never broke her. It never stopped her from appreciating and enjoying life. And as a reporter, she was really well loved. You know, she was one of the region's most experienced. Uh, she was a familiar face at um, the, you know, big news events that break in Palestine. Um, a generation of Palestinians grew up seeing her on their TV screens. She was one of the best known women reporters covering a conflict. So she was a household name. And that's why, you know, whenever you talk to anybody, like today, I in in Amman, Jordan, I I was wearing um, uh, this pin that has Shirin's face on it, and I I was going to buy something from the store, and the owner just you know said you know I love your pin and I'm so sorry about Shirin, and um, it just made me want to cry. I'm like you know, everywhere you go, people felt like they were connected to her. Um, because she was a fixture, you know, on, on Palestinian and Arab TV screens for more than two decades. She was intrepid. She was sympathetic, intelligent, and trustworthy. Um, but also she was like very calm, you know, like in front of the, in the field, she was very calm and collected and, but also down to earth. And I think that opened, you know, doors for her, like, that's what made Palestinians like bring her into their lives. And, um, you know, when a, when a story mattered, she was there. She was not, she never felt like a story was too um, small for her. 
And um, I know like, you know, across so social media, like a lot of people call her, you know, trailblazer, uh, a symbol and a martyr. Um, but I think the, the, the title that she earned throughout her life was that she was a journalist and she was very brave and kind at it. Um, and I think one thing that, you know, you mentioned earlier, a lot of people don't know that Shirin was a Christian from Jerusalem. And so she had her own struggles of, um, um, you know, living in Jerusalem and, and, um, constantly having to fear for, um, her residency being taken away uh, by Israeli authorities because um, she had American citizenship and because she worked in Ramallah a lot. And um, at the end of the day, you know, she had she had fears just like everybody else. She wasn't like invincible, but she she didn't put herself in harm's way. She didn't put her team in harm's way. She was very experienced. She knew the West Bank like the back of her hand. And she knew when she went to Janine to stand in front of the Israeli convoy to make them fully aware that she's there. And they still didn't care and they still killed her. And, but finally, I just want her to be remembered as, you know, somebody that every girl and even men wanted to be like her. You know, they, they pretended uh, a lot of the times that they had microphones and they would stand in front of mirrors and pretend to be Shireen and they would do her uh, closing line, Shireen Abu Aqli Al Jazeera Ramallah or, you know, wherever she was. And um, I think a generation of Palestinians will always, you know, remember her and will always idolize her. Um, but I think it's just like so important to get some justice for her family and accountability because honestly, like even for me as her friend, I feel like I can't move on. I can't move on until something happens. And, um, and I really hope that the U.S. administration does the right thing and not let Israel get away with one more crime, basically. I think you've summed it up um, perfectly. And I, I hope that all of us and her family and her friends um, for the sake of Shireen and, and who she was and everything she did, I hope she gets the justice um, that, that she deserves. And that means accountability. Um, and there won't be closure without accountability. Um, and, and that's what, I'm happy that we can, we can have you here today and, and, and help help keep this in the top of people's minds and not have this become um, just another highlight in the news cycle that then passes by and is forgotten. People are saying a year later, what happened with that? Um, this is too important. And, and I'm, I'm really grateful that you joined us today. So we're going to stop here. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining us again. For the audience, thank you for listening and for watching. Um, I want to encourage people again to uh, follow Dahlia on Twitter. That is at D-A-L-I-A-H-A-T-U-Q-A. -A -A. Um, I will be posting links to uh, all the articles we discussed today and as well as to uh, the link to Dahlia's Twitter accounts um, on the website. I've also pulled together um, a list of or a compilation of statements from the State Department about um, investigations so people can see sort of the, the not particularly interesting non-evolution of the US language from the day of her killing to today. 
Um, so there'll be a lot of resources there. I hope people check back on that. And I hope you can come back and join us again um, to discuss this and, and other things. And finally, for everyone, I want to encourage people to uh, subscribe to Occupied Thoughts. We have a lot of content coming out, like today's podcast. Um, you can do that on Spotify or SoundCloud or iTunes. So with that, we're going to end it today. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm going to sign off now until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thank you.